Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ahoy and welcome aboard to this episode of Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. My name's Alicia. And just in time for Father's Day, we've got a story that is exciting and new. Stacy, who are you bringing us this week? Today we're going to talk about actor Gavin McLeod, real name Alan C., whose turn as the Love Boat's Captain Steubing made him an immortal television presence. But also he was a really decent and gentle guy who had his struggles and missteps like all of us. It's a very relatable story, and it seemed like the perfect story for a holiday dedicated to the dads and all the people who dad out there. Before we set our course for adventure, I see a magic mirror right here on the Lido deck. Oh my God. Who are we welcoming with big love and thanks over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thanks so much for joining us, Nicole L., Heather F., and Terry. Holy cats, y'all are amazing. Thanks for joining us today. Let's set sail on this episode of Trashy Divorces. Stacy. What do we need to do? Cast off the lines and let's go, go, go! Oh, Stacy, I'm so excited. I have my clipboard ready. I'm on the Fiesta deck, the Siesta deck. I'm on all the decks with my clipboard. Sure. Let's go. Sure. Alicia, anyone who was alive in the 70s and 80s remembers the warm and welcoming face of Captain Steubing from the long-running hit show The Love Boat. Ah, Captain. He stood on the deck and greeted us week after week and invited America to set a course for adventure or to find a new romance. Of course, that wasn't the only part of Gavin McLeod's life or acting career, but it will always be what he is most well-known for. In fact, he had a large role as Murray Slaughter on The Mary Tyler Moore Show from 70 to 77, which earned him two Golden Globe nominations. Between The Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Love Boat, Gavin McLeod was in American homes through their television sets every week for more than 16 straight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... That's a a lot of Gavin. tough (laughs) Tough to do that these days. Born into modest circumstances, Gavin took his talent, sweet demeanor and determination, and carved out a life far beyond what he could have imagined as a little boy with holes in his shoes. Are you going to tell me this is a feel-good story? It's a feel-good story. Happy Father's Day, everybody. All the while, he never lost sight of who he was or where he came from. And most of all, he remained grateful for all of his good fortune, of which there was much. When he died in 2021 at the age of 90, wow! the outpouring of love and fond memories for Gavin showed how much he influenced those who knew him and those who felt like they knew him from watching him on television. After his death, his stepdaughter Stephanie said, he was the best, sweetest, purest guy. He had one of the most amazing, fun blasts of a life of anybody I know. He enjoyed every minute of it. I don't even think in his wildest dreams he dreamt of the life that he ended up having and creating. He was once asked if his incredible popularity over the years ever went to his head, to which he replied, 
No, because I know how things can change overnight. I never believed all of the publicity. I don't want to seem unduly humble, but I am a very grateful person. God has really had his hand in my life. But like everyone else, McLeod's life had its ups and downs. Although no part can really be called trashy, he struggled with alcohol abuse, he dealt with tremendous guilt, and had bouts of sadness. He was also married three times and divorced twice. He remarried his second wife after realizing that ending their marriage had been a mistake. Oh, this story has everything. I know, you tend to not like those, but it worked. Come Um, aboard. We're expecting you. Absolutely. This is the life and trashy divorces of Gavin McLeod. Come aboard. We're expecting you. I love it. All right, this poor guy was born Alan George C. Alan C. Alan C. Alan C. Um, Is he Doctor Who? Right. He was born on February 28, 1931 in Mount Kisco, New York, but the family moved to nearby Pleasantville a little later. Pisces, man. Okay. So you would think in Pleasantville, everything would be quite pleasant, but no. Uh, He had a younger brother named Ron. The family was very poor. And although he has fond memories of his father, he realized at a young age that his father was struggling with alcohol abuse. Mm. And this caused a great deal of financial and emotional turmoil for the family. Well, it's also 1931. We're in the Depression. Yeah. So probably nothing is pleasant in Pleasantville. I mean, change the name, guys. (laughs) All right. Gavin figured out very early on that he wanted to be an actor. In kindergarten, he starred in a Mother's Day play and was bitten by the bug when he basked in the applause and adoration of the audience. I'm sure it was standing ovations and flowers thrown anyway i'm sure it was not that but he really enjoyed the experience and so from that point on he acted and performed whenever he got the chance in 1945 when gavin was 13 14 his father died of cancer and in addition to the deep sadness that this caused him and his brother and his mother it also changed everything for the family his mom had to get a job she was gone for long hours the boys were left alone She was unable to take them to practices or other after-school activities. And Gavin also had to go to work to help the family make ends meet. Wow, that's a lot of change. Growing up fast. So luckily, people in the area would help the family out by hiring Gavin to clean floors or bathrooms. He did lots of lawn mowing and hedge trimming. The next summer, he took a job mowing the lawn and landscaping a cemetery two towns away. Not creepy. Mm -hmm. He had to walk to get there. Two towns away? Two towns away. (gasps) Yikes. Yeah. 40s. Uh, One day during his long walk home, a dog ran after him and bit him on the leg. (gasps) Yeah. A lady came out to help him, and as luck would have it, it turned out that she owned a restaurant that was opening nearby. Like, I'm opening a new restaurant. You, sir, seem like a go-getter and too bad about the dog bite. So she offered Gavin a job as a waiter. Oh, okay. Better than a cemetery. He quit the cemetery job and he started waiting tables not sure if this was actually the best thing that he was suited for so on his first day as a waiter oh no gavin dropped a bowl of soup on a customer's lap oh Mm. he was so upset with himself he assumed he was going to be fired and this was a huge problem because he'd already quit at the cemetery family needed the money this was this was a disaster Uh, However, the owner, this nice lady who helped him with the dog bite, walked over and, you know, come with me, young, I guess, Alan at the time. Come on, Alan, let's let's go in the back and talk. So he was terrified. 
She said, let me tell you something. What you just did is a sign that you're going to be a great waiter. Okay. Mm -hmm. He was so shocked that she wasn't mad at him and, of course, was thrilled that he was not being fired. He and the owner cleaned everything up and the rest of the meal went fine. And when the customer was done, he left a $1.25 tip for Gavin, which was more than he had made in the cemetery for an entire day's work. Wow. That's got to be life-changing. Yeah. So Gavin's autobiography, of course, was called This Is Your Captain Speaking. And Aww. so of this incident, he wrote, That moment taught me how important it is what you say to people. She could have dressed me down to the point where for the rest of my life, I, I would have been too scared to pick up a fork. Yes. In my own kitchen. But she didn't. And having that higher paying job turned out to be more important than I could have imagined. So as it turns out, not only did Gavin's father not leave anything to the family when he died, because he had nothing, his mother started getting bills that his father had not paid. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And so being only 13 when he lost his father, like all of this weighed heavily on him, especially because he felt a big responsibility to be a good role model for his younger brother. In his book, he writes about how his father's death impacted him and ultimately made him into the person he became. He wrote, I could have closed up into a ball right there, could have turned into a bad kid, but instead I did the opposite. I set myself on a trajectory to do something else, to go somewhere else. So Gavin, of course, since that kindergarten standing ovation and the flowers and flash bulbs and none of that happened <laughs> since since his big turn in the kindergarten school play. Right. He had loved acting. And so he participated in school theater productions whenever he could. He also was in the marching band. What a nerd. <laughs> he would enter one act play competitions and he actually won the best actor award three years in a row. I don't know if this was statewide or. Holy local, cat. Yeah. So real talent coming out when he was approaching high school graduation he, you know, was under a lot of pressure to figure out what, what is next. One of his friends was going to get him a job as a roofer. And his family was super supportive of this because it was good money. It was job security. It was stable. It was, you might fall off the roof, but hey, if you don't, all good. Life's full of risks, kid. Gavin was not super excited about the roofing job. I mean, he would have done it, but there was really one thing he wanted to do, and that was act, but he had no idea how he could make that happen or if that was even a possibility. So one night he was performing with his high school choir, and they were doing a big show at the White Plain County Center, and one of the baton twirlers in the show came up to him. She said she knew who he was through her boyfriend, Lou. Her boyfriend was a few years older than Gavin, but they had performed together in high school theater sometime okay. in the past. The baton twirler, named Shirley, explained that she and Lou both went to Ithaca College, and Lou thought Gavin was such a great actor that he should try for a scholarship. Oh, okay. So Shirley advised him to talk to his high school counselor about setting up an audition. So the counselor wrote what I assume was a pretty glowing recommendation letter and, you know, sent Gavin's transcripts along to Ithaca College. They contacted him back for the audition he had a good friend named Jimmy Downey who drove him to Ithaca College in his 33 Chevy. Gavin was adept at combining a variety of scenes and emotions from his one-act play competition work, like knew how to, how to do a bunch. So for his big audition, he worked up the drunken porter scene from Shakespeare's 
Mackers. I don't know if we should say it. We are inside. We are the Scottish play. The Scottish play. Wow. And then juxtapose that with a different scene from a play about a guy watching his own funeral so that he could demonstrate, you know, his, his range. A few weeks later, his brother came outside yelling for him with a letter in his hand. Oh, Alan C. Yeah, the mail just came. I couldn't wait. I opened the envelope. You got a scholarship. Holy cats. So Gavin earned a scholarship to Ithaca College to study acting, graduating in 1952 with a bachelor's degree in fine arts. He didn't go straight into acting, though. He served in the Air Force first. However, no future in roofing, it turns out. (laughs) When his stint in the Air Force was up, Gavin moved to New York City and started going to acting auditions. If you feel like things were better in the halcyon days of before, I want you to hear the rest of this. Like, struggling actors are just a thing, always have been, always will be. I am riveted. What happens next? To make ends meet, he worked as an usher and elevator operator at Radio City Music Hall. He shared rent with several roommates and was constantly broke. He often could not afford food, but he was able to find ketchup packets for free So he learned to mix that with hot water and make ketchup soup. Oh, Oh, my God. Oh, wow. On the days when he just could not stand to eat another bowl of ketchup soup, he would splurge on a hot dog from a street vendor, just piling it with, like, every free topping that was available at the cart, trying to get as many calories into that little body as he could. That's exactly right. He said that the vendors must have thought he was a crazy person by the way he would, like, ooh, ah, and more As relish, was, please. Yeah, eating this, like, like salad of a hot dog. He probably invented Chicago style. Anyway, he would have thrilling moments when big stars like Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz would get into the elevator at Radio City Music Hall. He had one big obstacle to getting an agent or getting work. What's that? He was already completely bald at 22. Or I guess no. not, not completely, but the classic Captain Steuben... You know, the bald pate. He already had that. Like At 22? Yeah. Wow. He'd been bald for years at oh that point. Oh, my God. Honestly. That's high so, school must a have, look. High school must have been tough for him. Uh, so he knew that he needed a hairpiece if he was going to get through the door for a lot of auditions. As soon as he was able, he'd started saving every penny that he could to buy one. And, you know, as hard as he tried, like he was eating ketchup soup. He was only able to save up about $25. He just was not making enough money, even with the roommates, even with everything. One of his roommates, however, was an electrician and did pretty well. The roommate knew that Gavin was struggling and wanted to help him, but figured Gavin would refuse any offer that he felt was charity. So he tells Gavin, listen, I cannot have a roommate with no hair anymore. I'm (laughs) sick of this, and gave him 100 bucks. Wow. So Gavin's got 125 bucks, and so he races off to get himself a hairpiece. He said to the salesman at, I don't know, two pays are us. I don't, sure. I don't know where you go. That's a from, real place. Mm-hmm. In 1950s New York, it probably is. He says to the salesman, you sell hair, I need hair. The rug doctor. The rug doctor. I don't do- know. So something. Good. Okay. <laughs> the salesman walked him around looking at his head and said, well... I can tell you it's going to cost between five and six hundred dollars. I oh, know. No. Poor Gavin. Gavin, of course, was like so disappointed. He's like, look, man, I've got one hundred and twenty five dollars. Is there is there nothing I can do? And the guy's like, you just come back when you have 
five or six hundred bucks and we're good to go. That's impossible. Right. He's like, look, I'm an usher and elevator operator at Radio City Music Hall. I make 37 bucks a week and I can't get an agent unless I have hair. It's a thing. And the salesman was like, exactly. So when you have five or six hundred dollars, you come on back and I'm going to hook you up and your life will change. So Gavin just crestfallen, just completely dejected, starts walking down the stairs to exit Bob's Rug Emporium. You can kind of hear the sad music. I'm crying a little. This is terrible. Uh Uh-huh. So what's about to happen probably constitutes some kind of crime. But anyway, the salesman shouts out, hey, kid, come back up here. So Gavin turns around and the guy tells him to sit down. And then he put a hairpiece on his head and asked him if he liked it. Gavin would have liked any hairpiece at that point. Exactly. Like literally anything. So the guy told him he could have that one for 125 bucks. And Gavin's like, but you just, we just went through this whole rigmarole. Yeah, what changed? So the salesman explains that someone had come in that morning to get a new hairpiece and left his old one there saying that he had no use for it. So of course he's going to like rip this kid off for every penny he's got, which he did. So Gavin's thrilled. Happily hands over the money. The guy could have given it to him for free. Let's be real. Yeah, you. somebody just left it there. Here, kid, I've got this extra one laying around. Right. No, oh, that is no. not how the big city slicker salesman worked. On the One w- star for <laughs> Dr. Rugg. <laughs> On the way out, um, he asked the salesman who the hair had belonged to. And he's like, I can't tell you that. That's private. So Gavin, you know, very happy now, starts to leave. And the guy's like, no, I'm kidding. Uh, It belonged to Andre Baruch, who was a really famous radio personality in New York at the time. He was known for this deep, booming voice. And Gavin wrote, I swear to you, from that moment forward, I spoke with a deeper voice whenever I wore that hairpiece. Decades later, when, you know, Gavin had fulfilled his dream of becoming famous and was on the love boat, he told the story on The Tonight Show. A week later, he gets a phone call on the set of The Love Boat. When he answered, he heard a booming voice that said, Gavin, this is Andre Baruch. (gasps) Gavin's like, oh, what an honor for you to call me. And he's like, hey, my wife and I are in town now, and I'm wondering, would you be interested in another (laughs) hairpiece? Oh, no. So Radio City Music Hall was not just a verdant place to be underpaid. It was also a great place to meet his future wife. So Gavin meets a beautiful Rockette named Joan Rutvik in 1954 while working there. Gavin thought she was absolutely perfect. She was beautiful, kind. She thought he was very funny. She can high kick. She's a Rockette. (laughs) She was Catholic like he was. It was a good match. So they fell in love and he decided that he wanted to marry her. But once again, Alan C. has no money. Right. But at least he's got hair. Yeah, Joan didn't care that he was an elevator operator who couldn't afford to take her out to the movies or out for expensive dinners. She believed in him, and she saw that he had the potential for a bright future. He knew he had to make more money for the couple to have any kind of future together, so he decided to audition for a road company. He was a little torn because it would mean that he'd be away from New York City and, you know, away from Joan. But he also knew he needed the cash, so he got cast in a children's show that toured schools. It wasn't a happy experience for him because conditions were pretty rough on the road. Uh, He didn't indulge in any fun activities or fancy meals because he was committed to saving. This guy is 
a financial wizard. He Right. So the savings worked, and by the time it was over, Gavin was able to pay off his student loan debt and had saved enough money to start a life with Joan. When he returned to New York City, he jumped right back into auditioning and trying to get an agent. But he still wasn't really having much luck. He thought it might be his name, Alan C. Sure. Alan C. Uh, that was getting in the way. He was afraid that Alan didn't sound strong or memorable enough and that his last name of C was confusing to people. So. Alan C? No, it's tr- it's a little uh, tricky. And is it the letter C, right? Like the pirate's favorite letter, as they say. It'd anyway, be the C. It'd be the C. <laughs> I guess that ties in to the love boat guy. All right. So he decided to use McLeod for his last name as a tribute to his Ithaca drama teacher, Beatrice McLeod. The first name Gavin was chosen from a character on the TV series Climax that he liked. He said the two names together out loud for the first time and was like, whoa, Gavin McLeod is awesome. I love my new name. So with his new name, suddenly his confidence went through the roof. He felt almost reborn, at least, you know, career-wise. He started a new job at Jim Downey's Steakhouse on 44th and 80th. I guess he had recovered from the soup incident years earlier. So this was closer to the action on Broadway, and it was a famous Broadway hotspot. It was so popular in the 50s that it would be featured in an episode of Mad Men. Oh, wow. You know, much more recently. Big producers, directors, stars came into the restaurant for drinks, food, talk, and business. Many aspiring actors tried getting a job there because they knew it was a great chance to meet insiders in the acting industry. The reason that Gavin got a chance was because he had been friends with Jim Downey's son, Jimmy, the guy who'd driven him to Ithaca College. Yeah. What a tiny, tiny, lucky world. It's all who you know. And sometimes people who've dropped things off with the hair guy. So with things looking up for Gavin, he decided that this was the right time to propose to Joan, who he called Rudy, R-O-O-T-I-E, because her last name was Rootvik. The couple married in 1955 at St. Malachy's, the actor's chapel right in front of the middle of the theater district. Both of their families were there, along with friends from school, acting classes, and Radio City Music Hall. And the marriage even made all of the New York newspapers because, you know, not because of Gavin, but because Rudy was a a rockette. Oh, okay, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, the headline was High Step and Pair. Oh, wow. Just a quick piece. It wasn't... I love it. Yeah. After the wedding, Gavin continued to study acting, auditioning, and waiting tables at Jim Downey's Steakhouse. So happy. One day, Marilyn Monroe came in with Eli Wallach and his (sighs) wife, Ann Jackson. Gavin wrote, One night I looked up across the bar, and there was Eli Wallach and Marilyn Monroe. She had on an open blouse and a sweater over her shoulder and was wearing no makeup. And I thought, oh my God, it's Marilyn Monroe. They came over and sat down right across from me. She didn't know I was an actor then. She just thought I was a young guy with a bad hairpiece. I said, hello, how are you? And how do you like New York? And Marilyn said, it's so different here. Everybody is so nice to me. Then I said, well, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And she laughed. (laughs) Well, 1955 was her big year, that Marilyn Manhattan year. She's trying to establish her own company. That's right on time. Yeah, I like to think that she did not laugh in his face, but just mirthfully laughed. Anyway, uh, and I said, you know what I'm going to do when I get home at 1.30 in the morning? 
I'm going to call all of my friends and tell them that I met Marilyn Monroe. And that is when she really laughed. Wow. What a nice story. Okay, so there's Gavin, sort of moving and shaking, sort of in the circles. Meeting Marilyn Monroe. It's Meeting not bad. Meeting Marilyn Monroe. And so we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how pregnancy causes more things to happen. Set and sail. Back in a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. All right, Alicia. Though Gavin was now in the middle of the action, sort of, at the steakhouse, by 1956 he began to wonder when and, you know, if he was going to get his big break. He still didn't have an agent, and when Rudy became pregnant with their first child, Gavin knew that he had to make something happen. Oh, yeah. And now. Being at Jim Downey's allowed him to hear about everything going on in the industry, so he heard that a popular Broadway play at the time, A Hat Full of Rain, was losing its lead actor to Hollywood, which meant the understudy would be moving up to the main role, which meant that there was an opening in the cast. So Gavin took a chance. The next time the director came into the restaurant, he asked to audition for the role. During the audition, just as he was feeling confident that he was nailing it, he tripped and fell on stage. Oh, no. Oh, Gavin. He jumped right back up and finished the scene, but, I mean, he left. He walked out of there like, okay, blew that chance. But when he went to work that night, the producer walked over and said, Gavin, kid, you've got your first Broadway show. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. How exciting. Yeah, props to a plucky spirit and a good recovery and, you know. It seems like maybe he just had that kind of soul. I think so. People want to do nice things right and he, he help promptly him? he promptly dropped a bowl of soup on the producers <laughs> no, he didn't so gavin could not believe his good fortune and he found out that not only would he be in a broadway production but his salary was going to be 90 bucks a week holy cow yeah big money at the time the production lasted about six months and gavin went on the road with the touring production after even after all of that he still could not get an agent in new york city because of his baldness In 1957, a friend of Rudy's said she knew an agent named Lou Irwin in Los Angeles and that she could arrange a meeting. Gavin flew out there, and while sitting in the office waiting for Irwin, he met a fellow actor named Ted Knight. No! And they became lifelong friends and, of course, were eventually co-stars on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Right. Oh, this is just so lovely, all of it. Yeah, Lou Irwin took Gavin on as a client that day. He liked his credentials, but he also liked that Gavin had brought his hairpiece in a box. Like, he didn't, he wasn't trying to pretend. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, to Lou Irwin, he was like, no, this is great because you can play two very different looks and this could get you a lot more interesting character work. Oh, just a different way to look at it. I like it. Right. So he and Rudy picked up stakes in New York and headed to Hollywood. Wow. Gavin made his television debut in 1958 on The Walter Winchell File. He went on to appear in many small roles, but they were on popular shows. Hawaii Five-0, The Untouchables, The Man from Uncle. Also in 1958, he appeared in his first film, I Want to Live, starring Susan Hayward. Okay, this is awesome. There was a scene in which he's supposed to pull Susan Hayward's hair. He was finding it really difficult to do because he's chivalrous and like it just it was out of character for him to do something like that the scene was going very poorly because he 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 was tugging her hair like just not just not landing it so finally susan hayward pulls him aside and she's like can i talk to you you know there's a rumor that i could get an oscar for this part it would really help me out if you would really yank my hair. Oh. And this finally got it for Gavin. So he agreed to do his best. And when they shot the scene again, he ripped on her hair. Susan Hayward was so surprised that she spontaneously threw coffee on him, which the director loved. And that was the take they used in the film. Gavin wrote about this event. Nine months later, the Best Actress Award goes to Susan Hayward. Holy moly. I was thrilled as I sat at home with my wife watching the Oscars on TV. I helped her get that award. (laughs) I still hated doing it to her, but what an honor. Isn't that funny? Good acting, man. I mean, you know. That's great. He just needed the right motivation, it turns out. Can you just pull my hair? Because I'd like that Oscar. I want the Oscar. Wow. So he was then in the film Operation Petticoat in 1959. This starred Cary Grant and Tony Curtis. He was completely starstruck by Cary Grant. Oh, who um, wouldn't? Come on. Oh, yeah, I know. Like, And he was really honored to be in a film with both of them. He followed that up with a critically acclaimed performance in the production of The Connection. Although he had these small roles in big films, there were theater production, there were television appearances. Everything was sort of coming together a bit. But he was growing concerned that there would not be a big break to solidify him in Hollywood. Like, he could go on doing bit parts forever. They paid the bills. But, you know, he had a growing family and he wanted something a little steadier, a little more provide his wife and children. One day in 1962, his friend Robert Blake stopped over for a visit. Wow. Mm-hmm. While Blake was there, Gavin got a telegram from Universal telling him that they were starting a new television series called McHale's Navy, and they wanted to talk to him about a part. Robert Blake was thrilled for him, and Rudy seemed to be very relieved and happy at the prospect of a steady paycheck and regular hours. This was really what they had both been hoping for in his career. So he goes to Universal and talks to them about the part. They wanted him to play Seaman Joseph Happy Haynes, but... Gavin was not happy to find that this was a small but recurring part. After his theater experiences and some of the other co-starring roles he's had, it seemed like a downgrade, but it would be consistent. He talked to his agent about it, and he talked to Rudy about it, kind of after figuring out that it, it was just not a meaty role. It was not calling to him. And both of them told him not to do it. Oh, really? Yeah, he knew in his gut that he should turn it down, but also he felt a real responsibility to have a steady paycheck 
steady hours, you know, be a good husband, provider, father, all of that. So what happens? Well, he says, I didn't see a choice. I have a mortgage now. I have a family to take care of. In my mind, I thought I had to do it. So I dismissed the opinions of the people in my life who cared about me most and who truly had my best interests at heart. Instead, I listened to my fear. What a mistake. Oh. And like Gavin really liked his co-stars. We're talking like Tim Conway, Ernest Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine became engaged to Ethel Merman during yeah. all of this. And so Gavin was delighted to be invited to their engagement party and get to know Ethel Merman. I love this story. Sure. She'd been one of his Broadway idols when he was a kid. The party was amazing. Ethel Merman sang to Ernest and, you know, the guests were all properly starstruck. However, their marriage was far less amazing than that engagement party. And years later, when Ethel wrote her autobiography, instead of writing any words about her marriage to Ernest Borgnine, she titled the chapter and left three blank pages. (sighs) Inauspicious. Oh, Ethel Merman. That sounds like a trashy divorce we need to follow up on. So similarly themed, it turns out that Gavin was dejected by his work on McHale's Navy. He would get a few lines each week, but it really, it was a small part. And he knew this was not where he was supposed to be, but he had those responsibilities and he felt really trapped. I mean, it just ended up feeling untenable. And then it got worse. So his friend Ted Knight came onto the set one day as a guest star. He looked at Gavin and said, how can you do this, man? You're a glorified extra. Oh, that helps. Yeah. So this really got to Gavin and he began wondering what he had done to his once promising career. He'd worked with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood. I mean, Cary Grant. Right. He got positive reviews for his theater work. He had been a respected actor. And now he was this guy with a couple of lines each week on McHale's Navy. He felt worthless. Eventually, he started drinking to kind of dull all of that and... I don't know, see over the problem. This, of course, multiplied his problems. As he drank more, his marriage suffered. As he and his wife fought more, he felt the need to drink more. It's the story you would expect. One day at a party at Ted Knight's house, Knight's wife even begged him to stop drinking and told him he was throwing away his life. Universal Studios was not that big then, and there was a bar across from the studio where the actors... Many of them would go at the end of the day. Gavin wrote that he remembered Clark Gable saying, if you want to keep your marriage together, go home after work. Don't stop and have a drink. A lot of guys do that and they start BSing with each other and one thing leads to another and suddenly there's a rift in the marriage. So Gavin realized this was in fact what was happening in his own marriage. Still, he continued on McHale's Navy for two years. He considers this two years of misery in his professional and personal life. The phrase glorified extra replayed in his mind. One night he was driving around for hours, depressed and feeling awful about himself. He got to the top of Mulholland Drive and turned the wheel toward the side of the road and sped straight toward the edge of the cliff. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. As he got closer and closer, he decided to stomp on the brake just inches from the edge He slumped over the wheel, his heart was pounding, and he wondered what he was doing. After he kind of caught his breath and regained his composure, he reversed off the edge, turned the car around, and realized that he was really close to his friend Robert Blake's house. He drove over and, you know, banged on the door, woke him up. When Blake came to the door, Gavin moaned, I'm not worth anything. So Gavin says this is the lowest point of his life. 
Robert Blake listened and told him that he couldn't go on like this and he needed to start seeing a therapist. It was Robert Blake who called a psychiatrist that he knew for Gavin and set up an appointment. Gavin started seeing the doctor every week. They came up with an action plan, which included him quitting McHale's Navy because it sounds like you're in a job you hate and that will tank your life. Unfortunately, therapy did not stop him from drinking, so he was still getting into a lot of arguments with Rudy. Uh Uh-oh. Despite all of that, they continued growing their family. They would end up having four children together, the youngest born in 1965. In 1966, Gavin went to Taiwan for a 10-month shoot for the film The Sand Pebbles. Along with Steve McQueen, Candace Bergen, Richard Attenborough, and Richard Crenna. I mean, holy cats. Yeah. In 1968, he was in the Big Valley with Barbara Stanwyck. Shortly after that, he shot the film Kelly's Heroes in Yugoslavia with Carol O'Connor, Donald Sutherland, Clint Eastwood, Don Rickles, and Telly Savalas. Quite the CV here. Then he got a call that Norman Lear was doing a new show called Till Death Do Us Part and wanted to see him in New York. Hello, Norman Lear. I've been waiting for you to call. Yeah. When he got to New York and read the script, he didn't think it was for him because the main character that he was up for was too much of a bigot. That's a quote. Um, He auditioned, and although his heart wasn't really in it, they really liked him. He was secretly hoping not to get the part and end up back in another job he didn't want. Like, the whole thing. So a few days later, Norman Lear called him and told him that the part was going to Carol O'Connor. Gavin was relieved. It was a few more years before the show would actually get made, but when it debuted in January 1971, it was called All in the Family. You bet it was. Mm -hmm. Holy smokes, this is amazing. Do you want to hear about the Mary Tyler Moore show? A little little thing called the Mary Tyler Moore show? You know I do. Gavin had met Mary Tyler Moore when he had a guest role on the Dick Van Dyke show back in 1961. She was super pleasant. He thought very well of her, but he didn't feel like they'd become friends or anything, right? Like They're just being polite to colleagues. your Right. It would be nearly a decade before he would get a role on the Mary Tyler Moore show that would change his life. But he was at rehearsals for a production of Carousel when his agent called with the news that Mary Tyler Moore was doing a pilot for CBS and they wanted to see him. He was sent the script and on the front were the words, Gavin, the part of Lou Grant. He reads the script and he tells his wife, This is written so well, but I worked with Mary on Dick Van Dyke twice, and I wouldn't believe myself as her boss. I'm more of a contemporary. I just don't see myself as being her boss. But there's this part of Murray, this guy, the writer Murray. Maybe I could do something with him. That would be fun. So his agent set up the meeting, and Gavin was very excited about the script because he'd seen more than his fair share of poorly written scripts over the years. He went to the audition, but told them that he really only saw himself in the Murray role and not as Mary's boss. They let him read for that part, and within a few lines, they were laughing and shaking their heads. Gavin realized that something special was happening here, so he stopped. Everyone in the casting room was mid-laughter when he said, That's all I want to do! Good luck! And walked out the door. When he got to the lobby, he saw Ed Asner pacing back and forth. He was getting ready to go in and read for the part of Lou Lou Grant, Grant, Mary's boss. So his agent came to find him in person at the rehearsals for Carousel and said that he had just gotten a call from the Mary Tyler Moore show and they wanted Gavin to do the pilot. Gavin said, you know, that's great. What part do they want me for? And the agent's like, I don't know. Is there a guy in there called Murray? (gasps) Yay! Yeah. 
So the Mary Tyler Moore Show was on the air from 1970 to 1977, and Gavin was in all 168 episodes. It was a groundbreaking series and was a front runner in feminism on primetime TV. We're going to make it after all. Yeah, we are. The show is still celebrated for its storylines and character development. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked the show as number six on their list of the 101 best written TV series of all time. In the course of its run, the Mary Tyler Moore Show was nominated for nearly 70 major awards. It won 29 Primetime Emmy Awards, and this was the record until 02 when Frasier broke it. Uh, Gavin McLeod was nominated in 1975 and 1977 for Golden Globe Awards for Best Supporting Actor. So just, just a real professional high. He's much happier in his work. Much happier in his work. However, Uh-oh. on the home front, things had been suffering for a long, long time. He and Rudy had remained together. They had four young kids and they had a busy life. But in 1970, Gavin met the woman who would become his next wife. What happened was, okay, so he and Rudy went to see a play together at a theater group that Gavin belonged to. He noticed a minor character in the production that caught his eye. After the show, he asked the choreographer who she was, and the choreographer said that her name was Patty Steele, and then introduced the two of them. And Patty said, oh, I know you. I love your show. And they talked for a bit. Gavin wrote, there was something special about her. I don't want to say I met my soulmate, because part of my soul was with Rudy. We'd been in and out of marriage counseling for nearly eight years. We had tried, we really had, but I felt a pull to be somewhere else so often. So according to Gavin, he and Patty were, were just good friends for a long time. He was trying to deny his feelings for her. He even set her up on dates with some of his friends. A little messy, a little complicated. For sure, yeah. Weirdly, none of those worked out, none of those blind dates or arrangements or whatever. She was a divorcee with three kids. She worked as a secretary during the day and performed in theater at night on weekends, like as a hobby. One of the last straws in his marriage to Rudy came in 1971 when the primetime Emmy nominations were announced. The entire cast was nominated, except for Gavin. Oh, no. So he was happy for everyone else, but, you know, I mean, as you would, he was really disappointed not to get one for himself. And Rudy's reading the paper that morning and just says, everybody got a nomination but you. Uh Uh-oh. He is careful to note that she had not said it in a mean way, just in a matter-of-fact way. But, you know, he did not need this to be pointed out for him to take note of it. He was quite aware that he had not been nominated. Mm. So he was really upset. He, He became angry. And the same morning, Patty called him and left a friendly message telling him that she was sorry about the nominations, and if he wanted to talk about it, she was there for him. Oh, Patty. Mm -hmm. Soon after, Rudy took the kids to Seattle to visit her parents, and when she came back, Gavin told her that he wanted a divorce. He wrote in his book that he wasn't sure if he would have stayed if he hadn't fallen for Patty, but that the marriage was falling apart regardless. His daughter Julie told him much later that she and her sister Megan used to lay in bed and cry, listening to them fight downstairs. But Gavin being Gavin, he felt tremendous guilt over ending his marriage and causing his four children to, you know, have a broken home. He does credit Rudy with being a wonderful mother to them, both before and after the divorce. This was finalized in 73. Years after the divorce, he asked Rudy and the kids for their forgiveness, and they gave it to him. Okay, so on to the second marriage. 
So Gavin married Patty Steele on February 22nd, 1974. There was a photo taken right after the ceremony that included the couple and their seven children between them. Wow. Gavin points out that it wasn't lost on him that only one of the children were smiling. It took a lot of time for the children to accept and adapt their new reality. Like, I don't... Blended family. It's tough. It's tough. And, like, it it sounds like the kids were not happy when he and Rudy were together. But, obviously, the trauma of, yeah, just a just the whole thing. Meanwhile, his career is still in full swing at the Mary Tyler Moore Show. In 1978, Patty told People... Gavin was an alcoholic. He became a different person when he drank. But before we were married, he said, I will never take another drink because I don't want to lose what we have. Gavin says that once he quit drinking, he never had a craving for another drink, like once he set his mind to it. But it was not the alcohol that would cause this marriage to come to an end. They would divorce in 1981 after seven years of marriage. He would tell Fox News later, I put my work before her. The love boat became such a giant job. I was all over the place promoting it. I was traveling all over. And I just felt, this sounds very egomaniacal, but I just felt I didn't have time for her anymore. Wow. So let's get to the part about the love boat. So during the final days of the Mary Tyler Moore show, Gavin started getting many calls from his agent, all these new projects that were being offered to him. And one of the pilots was a little errant spelling joint to be called a love boat. Gavin was skeptical because there had been two previous pilots shot for this show that had not been picked up. He asked his agent if he had read the script, and the agent had and told him that it sucked. Oh, no. Gavin read it, and he liked how it had three distinct storylines. One of them reminded him of Love American style, but set on the water. He thought that as long as the show was cast right, it had a great chance of becoming a hit because there was just nothing else like it on television. He made an appointment to see Aaron Spelling at his estate. Spelling promised to give him flexibility so that he could do other things. He could do theater. He could do game shows. Like he, you know, he could have a well-balanced professional life. He said that he could have some weeks where his role was much smaller and others where it was much bigger and... And then, you know, all the guest stars that uh, we shall have on the Love Boat, which I believe over the run of the show, they had something like 900 guest spots that they filled. It seems like everybody either on their way up or their way down was a star on the Love Boat. Absolutely, yeah. So Gavin loved it. He was thrilled with the casting of the other roles. The last part to be cast is your favorite, the cruise director, Julie McCoy. It was Candy Spelling, who's credited with finding Lauren Twos after hearing that they couldn't find quite the right actor to play the character. Candy Spelling remembered a girl who had played a one-day role on Charlie's Angels and was like, Aaron, go talk to her. Aaron Spelling got so far in his life because of his wife, Mm -hmm. Candy. So Aaron tracked her down and she was cast for the pilot. In 1977, The Love Boat premiered on ABC's Saturday Night Lineup. Gavin McLeod played the lovable Captain Merrill Steubing, the gentle yet firm patriarch of the ship's crew. The Mary Tyler Moore Show brought McLeod a great deal of financial and professional success, but the love boat would make him one of the most recognizable faces and names on television for the nine seasons that it ran. So the show ran through 1987. Uh, There were also multiple reboots. There were films after the original series ended. 
it's been in syndication for years and years and years. Like it's, it's its own phenomenon. We all know. So originally the Captain Steuben character was written to be a much tougher and gruffer character, which I mean, could have been fine, but that was not Gavin, you know, like he's this softer side kind of guy. So the likability of the captain was a big part of the show's success. Gavin told an interviewer, I tried to make him a nice paternal father image, a caring person. And Gavin also incorporated his own battle with alcohol into the, the character story. And so Captain Steubing became a recovering alcoholic. Also a good role model for the time. Gavin could not believe his luck in getting to play Captain Steubing. So again, this is a guy who came up in the 50s. So he had all of these guest stars from the golden age of Hollywood, oh, yeah. mm-hmm, as well as current up and coming stars. Like you said, everybody on their way up, on their way down. You wanted to be on the love boat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the cast got along fabulously. He was making a ton of money. It was just great. So Gavin would say, the big stars are the best. I pinched myself every single day when he was heading to work on the love boat, Gavin told an interviewer, like anticipating who was going to be on the set and quote, the experiences we would have working together. It seemed too good to be true, but there was one part of his life that was not going well. Once again, it was his marriage. In the middle of the run of the love boat, Gavin and Patty divorced. He claimed it was due primarily to his busy schedule and his self-important attitude about his work. The love boat was going stronger than ever, so I, I think, I don't know, he just kind of washed his hands of the marriage. Between 78 and 81, the love boat was nominated for four consecutive Golden Globe Awards for Best Television Series, with Gavin nominated three times for Best Actor. Uh, it was also nominated for five primetime Emmys. But unlike the Mary Tyler Moore show, the love boat was mostly panned by critics as unrealistic and formulaic, all of which is true. That doesn't mean it's not great, easy television to watch. Gavin defended the show, saying, I don't care if it reflects life or not. I love happy endings. Life's so heavy these days that people want to escape. It's exactly right. The love boat was prophetic 50 years ago, <laughs> friends. In 1984, Gavin's mother developed a cyst in her brain that required emergency surgery and Gavin could not get there uh, before the surgery. So so he found himself praying that if God would give his mother more time, he would turn his life over to Jesus. Right after he did this, he felt really inspired to to call Patty really out of the blue. He hadn't seen he hadn't seen her since they divorced three years before. He called her and asked if they could be friends. She agreed, and soon after he went to her house to visit. She answered the door and said, I'm sorry, Gavin, your dinner's cold. It's been waiting for three years. Aww. She then gave him a Bible that she had had engraved with his name that day. She told him about her newfound Christian faith and how it had changed her life completely. After spending a lot of time together over the next several weeks, Patty told Gavin that she had been praying that God would bring them back together. Gavin joined Patty and became a born-again Christian. Then they reconciled and remarried in 1985 and then stayed that way. Gavin explained the marriage this way, quote, We have what you call a threefold marriage. You make a triangle with your hands and you can see Jesus is at the top and we're below. That's pretty solid. You're a threefold covenant. There's three people in this marriage. We've been through some difficult things, but we're still here stronger than ever and living for the Lord. 
And they just remain married forever happy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. It is. And it's funny because, you know, he's sort of saying that they ended the first time because he maybe got a bit too big for his britches. But apparently in finding, you know, something bigger than himself, they were able to sort of resume. In 1987, Gavin wrote about their story in a book that he called Back on Course. All of the, all of the themes. Back on Course. The remarkable story of a divorce that ended in remarriage. I'm feeling naughty. <laughs> we could do boat puns all day. Sure. Sure. It would really buoy us. <laughs> in 1987, The Love Boat ended its official run on primetime television. But that would not be the end of it for Gavin McLeod. Princess Cruises made him their spokesman. This was a whole thing in the 90s. This oh, guy yeah. was like pitching cruise lines. During his time as spokesman, the company grew from three ships to 17. Wow. And they were much, much larger than the Pacific Princess from the show. That is some brand licensing right there. Yep. He and Patty hosted a faith-based show for several years on Trinity Broadcasting. And he continued to have guest roles on popular TV shows, including HBO's Oz, The King of Queens, Jag, Touched by an Angel, and that 70s show. I honestly had no idea that he'd had all the I, I'm sure I saw many of them but didn't register anyway Gavin remained grateful for all of his blessings and experiences at the age of 82 after having two heart attacks he told an interviewer grateful is a big word in my life I'm just so grateful I've had another day another day another day and that my kids are doing so well as noted um, he has passed he left uh, he left the world on May 29th 2021 at the age of 90 good long life. And his the announcement of his death was met with just universal sadness. Gonna need a minute because Ed Asner. God, do I even have to read these? Like, honestly, when I read this earlier, I was like, oh, this is cool. I don't have any tie to the guy. Like, I'll get through his You're tearing death. up. Do you want to hit it to me and let me read <clears throat> blind? Do, do you want? Yes. Why yeah. don't? Yes. I'm not crying like you are right now. The first one is Ed Asner. I'm normally the crier on this show. But, sure. All right. Oh, Ed Asner. Try it. I dare you. On Gavin McLeod's passing, Ed Asner, his Mary Tyler Moore co-star said, my heart is broken. Gavin was my brother, my partner in crime and food and my comic conspirator. I will see you in a bit, Gavin. Aw, oh, tell the gang I'll see them in a bit. Betty, it's just you and me now. Okay, see that? Yeah. Uh, filmmaker Kevin Smith. I assure you we're open for tears. <laughs> Kevin Smith tweeted, As a 70s, 80s kid, I spent many a Saturday night with my mom, dad, brother, and sister watching Love Boat. So I was unexpectedly sad to see Gavin McLeod. Oh, has cruised on to that Puerto Vallarta in the sky. I know I was making I, a little bit of fun of you, but yeah, I, well, okay. Thanks for the many memories, Captain Stubing, here and at WJMTV. Hashtag RIP. Nancy Sinatra. Oh, God. Will make us cry a little bit more by tweeting, Gavin McLeod will always be a member of our family. Oh, and the best neighbor anyone could ever have. Our hearts are aching. We will miss him terribly and love him forever. Godspeed, dear friend. One last one from Suzanne Summers, a Uh, guest on The Love Boat. Sure. 
sums it up for everyone here by saying, Gavin was the true definition of a star, but more than that, he was a light. He lit up the room and everyone loved him. He makes everyone in the room feel fortunate that they are there. Friends, that is the not-at-all-trashy-divorces story of actor Gavin McLeod, Captain Steubing. What a delightful story. I don't even think trash halos. cans. It's yeah. halos. It's all, it's a cruise ship full of halos. All located on the Pacific Princess. Yes. I'm noting all of those halos down on my clipboard. Absolutely, Julie. Absolutely. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this Trashy Divorces cruise today. We hope you enjoyed your journey here on the Trashy Divorces Princess. Absolutely. And for those of you looking for the Spiderwebs bonus portion for patrons, uh, that's coming to you Monday. We have been compiling a list of some of our favorites and some TD alums from the more than 900 guest stars of the Love Boat series. So we've been here long enough, I think. Stay tuned on Monday for that spider web of a dumpster dive. It'll go to everybody. Yep. Friends, if you want to get in on that action, you can check out patreon.com slash Tarashi Divorces. Right now, you can subscribe for seven days free. Check that out. See if you like what's over there. We've got almost 14 hundred episodes it's bonus early ad free it'll keep you busy <laughs> certainly if you need something to do this summer looking to fill your deck time we got you thanks everybody again for tuning in today y'all are simply the best friends we'll be back on wednesday with yet another trashy divorces waiting for you and cruising to you <laughs> until we see you then i hope that you will keep your hands clean i hope you'll keep your hearts trashy and we can all just sail away, sail away, sail away. Hmm. Bye, friends. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.